This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Ben Sass is the junior United States Senator from Nebraska. Before being elected to the Senate in 2014, he taught history at the University of Texas, served as an assistant secretary in the United States Department of Health and Human Services, and was president of Midland University in Fremont, Nebraska. He holds a doctorate in history from Yale University. His doctoral dissertation won the Theron Rockwell Field Prize for Best Dissertation and the George Washington Eggleston Historical Prize. He is also a graduate of St. John's College and Harvard College. He has been executive director of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. During that tenure, he co-edited a book with the late James Montgomery Boyce entitled Here We Stand, a call from Confessing Evangelicals. His latest book is one of the most interesting, I think, to have ever been written by a sitting United States senator. The title, The Vanishing American Adult, Our Coming-of-Age Crisis and How to Rebuild a Culture of Self-Reliance. Senator Sass, welcome to Thinking in Public. Senator Sass, this is a very unusual book, an especially unusual book to be written by a member of the United States Senate. You tell the story of why you came to write the book. Is this the book you intended to write? Uh, Intended, yes, since 2012 or 13 when I first started chewing on it. But before that, no intentions whatsoever. I, I became president of Midland University, a Lutheran liberal arts college outside of Omaha, uh, in 2009, because of a financial crisis they were having, and I have a lot of background helping turn around institutions that are failing or flailing, both for-profit and not-for-profits, and there was nothing about why they were seeking me out to help lead this university that had anything to do with student culture. And then I found in the first you know weeks and months on the new job in my calling that what really was keeping me up at night more than anything else was student culture. And so from then on, I'd intended to write this. Well, and you talk about a specific incident that has to do with a Christmas tree, as I recall, that uh, kind of awakened you to a difference in terms of young people in just a matter of, 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 say, one generation to the next. Something has happened in terms of American society and, uh, and the way we do or do not create young adults. Right. So I want to be clear, this book is not uh, an old man screaming, get off my lawn. It's actually a constructive project. Two thirds of it is uh, what can we do uh, to better help transition our kids from childhood to adulthood. But the one third of it that is stage setting, I spend a lot of time on some economic history and sociology and, and cultural data about what's actually happening to students in their adolescent period. But I wanted to take a couple of vignettes just to to crystallize what this actually felt like. And so one of the experiences that you refer to, the Christmas tree event, that really kind of startled me was that we have a big athletic arena at this college that I used to lead. And some of our best students are those who get hired by the development office and advancement fundraising office or the athletics department. And students from both of those offices had been tasked one year, late November, uh, with uh, setting up a Christmas tree in the lobby to the athletic arena. And it was about a 20-foot tall Christmas tree, and they were given all the decorations and supplies to decorate it. And they spent all the decorations and all the ornaments in about an eight feet of this 20-foot tree, and then were walking off. And one of the vice presidents of the university happened by, and she said, hey, what are you guys doing? The work isn't done. And they said, oh, well, we're, we're out of decorations. 
And she said, but you only decorated the bottom half of the tree. And they said, yeah, we didn't know how to get any higher. And she said, oh, so university maintenance refused to bring you a ladder? Or, you know, she went through this series of questions, and it hadn't occurred to her that none of them had ever really thought to ask the fundamental questions of what will this task look like when it's done? And so they just did the things that were immediately in front of them, and then the ornaments were gone, and they thought they were done. And I I don't want to overstate the significance of this one moment, except that when this vice president for, for development was sort of interrogating them, there was just such a passivity about the way they approached the problem that something clicked in me that this was a very different experience of being 18 or 19 or 20 or 21 than I had known. I, I, I was only 37 when I became president of this college, so I didn't think of myself as that different. I mean, basically a generation older, but I didn't have kids that were close to college age at that point. My kids were little kids. And so I didn't think of myself as that far removed from these students. And yet, One of the most basic, obvious differences was when I went off to college in 1990, everybody I'd graduated high school with, whether they were going to college or not, and everybody I got to college with, whether they came from a you know lower middle class family or a wealthy family anywhere in the country, pretty much everybody had done some si- some sort of work. And the vast majority of the students coming into our college, and again, this wasn't a rich school, the vast majority of our kids coming into the college in 2009-10 had never really done any work before. Yeah. And that struck me as worth pausing to reflect about. Well, I appreciate the anecdote. For one thing, I'm an I'm, I'm a college and seminary president, and so I understand what's going on there. And I, I, I want to affirm the fact that, that your book is not a screed. It's, it's not an angry old man uh, yelling, get off, uh, get off my lawn, nor is it rightly understood even really addressed to young people. It's addressed to the nation. But what you do have in that is sort of the sweetness of the reality. I mean, you, you, as you said, you, these were hardy and healthy young university students, and, and they're the very ones that – were chosen because of of, of their promise and uh, and uh, as a, as a public face of the university and this is this this is a story about them. You're not castigating them. You're saying, what does this tell us? Is a barometer here pointing to something? And uh, and then the bigger section of your book really is addressed uh, not even just to the parents, young people, but to an entire society. This is something that has happened and is happening to us as as Americans. And uh, that made me appreciate the book even more than what was implied in the title. Well, thanks. Yeah, it definitely, the audience definitely is uh, all of us uh, because fundamentally we have, we're emerged, we're discovering, we're drifting into this new category, perpetual adolescence, which no one has chosen. This wasn't, this wasn't a self-conscious deliberative act to say, Hey, let's have adolescence, not have any end point. It's just something we've drifted into, and we have to understand it and how we got here and then ask, do we really want this? And I don't think anybody wants this. Adolescence is a special thing. It's worth celebrating. It's a concept that's really only about two millennia old, that you have this kind of greenhouse stage between hitting biological adulthood, um, and yet we don't assume that just because somebody hits puberty, they need to be fully financially or emotionally or education school leaving or in terms of household structure, a fully independent adult. Adolescence is a pretty special thing as long as we know that it's a means to an end. It's a transitional state. It's definitely not to be a destination, and that's what we're drifting toward. You know, absolutely. As a matter of fact, uh, adolescence is an achievement of sorts. Uh, it, It is noteworthy that historically adolescence emerged from a society that was that was pretty complex, uh, pretty stable, and increasingly wealthy, uh, such that uh, that the society could give its its efforts uh, towards helping young people to emerge into full adulthood. Uh, it's just that that emergence isn't happening now. Right. 
Yeah, really, really well said. It's sort of when there was a little more wealth and a little more security, civilizations and cultures have tended to say, hey, wow, we could invest in our teens or, you know, now adolescence is becoming a teen and 20 something category, but it used to be late single digits and early teens sort of years just right before puberty. And then a couple of years after let's, let's invest in this period of transition and emergence for them. But now what's happening is the wealth or the freedom from violence and the freedom from um, immediate, you know, abject poverty that enabled adolescents to come into being, we seem to be so wealthy that we've lost a sense of what the purpose of this investment was. And it becomes, as you say, kind of an achievement or a destination. Well, Peter Pan was a dystopian hell. Disney tried to make it a, a time to be celebrated. But the idea of being stuck in Neverland and being bodily an adult and yet morally so impoverished that we can't pause to reflect on a history and a future, that's not something anybody should want. You know, as a matter of fact, the actual text of Peter Pan is something you would not want read to your children. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, at the end of it, you know, in, in the real um, very, very write-up of it, at the end, Peter Pan is asked about all the people that he's killed, and he doesn't even remember them. He, he has no moral memory. That's and right. so he's, he's got the body of an adult that can commit serious acts, and yet he doesn't have the mind and the, and the spirit and the deliberative capacities to reflect on that. You went back to ancient Roman law early on in your book, or, or that is Roman culture, talking about the three stages of, uh, of, of the process from childhood to adulthood. And, uh, and, and that was really interesting. But you know what, what I thought of when I read that uh, was something very close to you there in Washington, D.C., and, and that's the Shakespearean stained glass window there at the Folger Shakespeare Library showing the seven ages of man. And uh, until recently – all of those seven ages of man, drawn, of course, from the uh, famous uh, uh, soliloquy in, uh, in As You Like It, uh, that really was the expectation for human beings. Of course, in this case, male human beings as, as, uh, as indicative. But uh, in a way, you can't even really relate that stained glass window, the seven ages of man in Shakespeare, to the experience of so many young men in America today. Yeah, that, that is really well said. I mean, there, there have been... Uh, intergenerational uh, relationships and a reflection on wisdom to think about different stages of life in most places where people had the freedom to be, again, free from, from war and abject poverty. They could step back and say, well, what is what is life like? I mean, there are lots of ways to do this that are painful. Uh, Ecclesiastes has it in ways that are both plain, painful and yet laced with hope. But Neil Postman had that great uh, insight 20, 30 years, I guess probably 30 years ago, that increasingly we were creating a world that only had three stages. And he said it was the, the because television and, and digital imagery and digital media, he thought adultified uh, children and infantilized adults, Absolutely. that basically the big transition from being a child to being someone who was a full, knowledgeable consumer, not necessarily wise, but a full, knowledgeable consumer of American adult life was essentially a distinction about whether or not you could manage your bowels. And then he said, late in life, when you become uh, demented and, and debilitated, then again, you can't manage your bowels. And he said, most of life was um, this dependent, really baby state and this dependent, very old, infirm state. And we just let everything in the middle wash together. And deliberate cultures and thoughtful people don't do that. They recognize that there are lots of different moments in life. One of our kids right now happens to be reading uh, C.S. Lewis's Four Loves. And there are all sorts of moments in life that you transition through. And thoughtful communities want to love their kids enough that they give them some insights into what's coming next and what will be expected of them. 
Absolutely. You write about why. And and I, I want to get some bigger uh, concepts behind this, some more fundamental issues. But continuing the argument that's in the title of your book in terms of uh, the, the failure of our society to produce adequate uh, young adults, young adults ready for the challenges or ready for adulthood, you mentioned several reasons why. You indict certain specific reasons why we are failing. I want to give you an opportunity to lay those out. Sure. Well, um, because the the way I tried to frame this, getting to the two-thirds that's constructive, there are a couple of different places where I uh, try to briefly run through some of the causes. And so, Dr. Miller, you help me and pull back to the ones that you most want to focus on. I think a few of the key ones are um, we have sort of a broad affluenza going on, which is um, usually the relationship between production and consumption, or even even between work and leisure, or the old you know Puritan way of uh, sort of redeeming the word was to talk explicitly about recreation as opposed to just leisure, because leisure might sound like it was an end in itself, and recreation is to be recreated so that we can get back to the work about of living a life of gratitude to God and loving our neighbor by serving. There are all sorts of great things that happen at that line right around leisure and recreation. But the purpose is to revivify us to go out and serve and work again and live a life of gratitude. Usually, production produces some economic surplus that can then be invested in recreation or leisure. And across an individual or even maybe a sub period of someone's life in an individual, that makes perfect sense. But we have become generationally or societally so rich. We are the richest people at the richest time and place in human history, um, such that a lot of the surplus that's been produced by the generations before us has led to an ability for our kids to be insulated from work. And thoughtful, wise parenting doesn't want to free our kids from work. We want to free them to find meaning in work and in service. By work here, I mean uh, in the older you know, Latin and then Reformational sense of vocation, Absolutely. work in terms of callings and duties before God. So parenting is work. Um, our, our work in, the, in ministry, if you're professionally called to it, or those, the ways that we either uh, volunteer and serve in our local congregation, etc. There are lots of categories of work that are not just economically compensated. But our kids are really growing up in a way where, first, because of cultural assumptions about wealth, they're insulated from work. And then secondarily, because technology has so changed the work environment that most of our kids are physically, spatially, geographically segregated from work. So they don't really grow up around it. And therefore, what's happened is that we've uh, generationally segregated and spatially and in terms of time segregated our kids, mostly in terms of schooling such that they tend to think of school not as a tool, which is the thoughtful way to think about it. School is an important gift as long as it is also a means to the broader end of education and understanding of God's diverse creation and preparation for service. But school is not the end in itself. Progression through years and grades in school is just a means. It's not the end. And yet we've grown from a time where kind of an agrarian to industrial transition in 1870, then 1900, 1920 America, you went from most people not having much school to almost everybody having uh, a mass school experience, not only mass elementary, but obviously mass secondary schooling, which became a normative experience in American life by World War II. And now what we've tended to do is institutionalize more and more of childhood so that kids don't have, and I'll pull up here, they don't really tend to have an instinctive in the belly 
feeling of the difference between production and consumption. They just have school and progression of years and time through school as if that's kind of their work. And the rest of their life is just different kinds of consumption. And they end up in a way where it's hard to tell the difference between producing something and consuming something. And when you're consuming, which is most of their experience, it's hard to know the difference between needs and wants. You know, these days, Senator, so many pay attention, rightfully so, at least to thinking people, to the economic category of social capital. But it tends to be individualized, uh, individuals building, losing, spending, earning social capital. But the, the early idea of social capital was that society requires the common building of, of social capital, contributing. And you mentioned uh, a parent in the home and uh, volunteers in the community. They're building social capital. They are contributing to the society, building its its uh, its capital base. Uh, that's what's not happening. And and the the distinction you make in terms of what you called affluenza, uh, others have, have identified the same. But the, this culture of consumption it only works if the social capital exceeds the consumption. Right. Uh, so so well said. I I think there's a there's an economic historical point to be made here about how social capital there was some broad panic in America as agrarian culture declined and had more um, technolo- technology substituted for labor and there was a migration to the cities and there was a worry about whether or not social capital uh, would be reproduced in cities. But there's also just an observational point that's you, worth teasing out. Um, my wife and I, because I've done a lot of uh, strategy consulting and crisis management over the last two decades, we've lived in a lot of states. Um, we live back in my hometown now in Nebraska, um, a farm town about an hour outside of Omaha. We've lived there for the last eight years. But before that, we had popped through lots of different communities. And so we've seen lots of different public schools, lots of different uh, Lutheran elementary schools, lots of classical Christian schools and homeschooling Christian co-ops, partly because we've been a part of a number of these different communities and institutions, but also just because we've lived a lot of places. And when we're there, we're, we're curious about what's happening with education and Christian education. And it is amazing to see the difference between schools that have been around a little while and figured out how important culture is at their school versus those who have just gotten started and think that really all they have to do is get it right in terms of having the right curriculum in place and then everything will work. So much more of what happens is the sea of assumptions that kids are raised around about what the good, the true, and the beautiful are and what you want your appetites and your heart and your loves to start inclining towards. And clearly that's what a lot of neighborhood and neighborliness and common grace are about, is about whether or not there are those shared assumptions. And I think we're going through a very interesting um, opportunity filled ultimately, but frankly, scary time in American life where we're going through so many transitions so rapidly that there's a hollowing out of local community and mediating institutions. And so I think that there's, there's sort of a mass epidemic of loneliness in America right now, but people don't have the right categories and hooks for how to think about the problems we face at this time. Absolutely. And I appreciate you getting to so many of these issues. As as a, both an author and as a reader, I look for particular sections in the book, and at least by my reading, I come to the conclusion the author wrote the rest of the book for this. And uh, I, there was more than one uh, place like that in your book, especially in the second two-thirds. But in the first one-third of your book where you diagnose the problem – I think it's early on when you talk in the chapter from Little Citizens to Baby Einsteins and you enumerate some of these reasons, and I just want to get them on the record. 
You suggest that some of the reasons are more medication, more screen time, more pornography, more years under mom's roof, less marriage, less religious participation, little citizens no more, and the fact that so many of these uh, young people are uh, more intellectually fragile. You point to other reasons such as softer parenting. None of these are by accident. None of them stand alone. But I appreciate the fact that you, you dared to catalog some of these issues and to identify them straightforwardly. Yeah, I was very um, mindful of the fact when I when I set out to write this, and, and you're right that I did it to get to the second two-thirds, which is the constructive sort of five what-can-we-do-about-it chapters. Um, but I was mindful of the fact that some might see this as a, a grumpy screed that's just about generational transitions, and people always think that, you know, the, the young have lost their morals, and if only they could be like we were perfect in every way, everything would be fine. I, I very self-consciously, I recognize that when I first came back to take over Midland, again, I was mid-30s when we moved back to Nebraska, and 37 when I took over this college, um, in God's providence, one of the ironies was there was a guy on the board at Midland where I'm going to help lead a crisis turnaround. There was an old doc, an old doctor in the town who I remembered for years when I'd been away at college and then traveling the country. Um, I remembered this guy when I was in high school and I'd drive too fast through his neighborhood to pick up some gal who lived down the street from him to take her out on dates. I would drive too fast and the guy stood in the middle of the street a couple times and shook his fist at me and said, slow down, you're going to kill some kid in the street. And uh, I felt guilty about it as I matured that I realized he was right and I was wrong and he probably did have an effect of slowing me down. And then I got back to Midland and this guy was one of my bosses because he was on the board of the college. And so I went over to him and took him aside for a conversation and wanted to thank him for having, you know, kind of angrily, but having intervened in my life and frankly, possibly protected me from harming someone in his neighborhood. That's just generational transition, sort of, sure. you know, insufficiently formed frontal lobe of a 17 year old male with, you know, a car that can drive fast. That's going to change between 17 and 37. That's just biology. This is about something different, which is societally, our kids are actually demonstrably becoming more sedentary and more passive. They are taking less initiative about these transitional states in your teens and 20-somethings. And clearly part of the story is just digital distraction. There is more and more tendency to think that going to the top of a mountain on Instagram because your friend went there and you looked at a picture is a substitute for actually going to the top of a mountain. That's not true. And we need to have that conversation in a broad way. So I want to catalog some of that. It says something about the tenor of the times that whenever we are engaged in a substantial conversation about our nation, the accusation sometimes comes that it's essentially negative. I think that probably goes back to a fundamental reality of fallen human existence. If we are going to talk about human reality, we're going to have to talk about some problems. And indeed, if we're going to get to solutions to those problems, to constructive responses to those problems, we've got to be honest about what the problem is. That's a part of the gift of this book by Senator Ben Sass. His main ambition is not to spend most of his time diagnosing the problem, but he does instinctively know that if he does not define and describe the problem well, his solutions will appear to be hanging in midair, which they profoundly are not. I want 
actually get to the big ideas in your book. And by the way, the first thing I want to say is how thankful I am for a United States senator who uh, traffics in very big ideas. Uh, that's, that's not always the case. It's not always rewarded uh, in terms of our political structure. And uh, when I read your book, I, I, I thought, you know, this, this is a bit like what would happen if uh, I think Daniel Patrick Moynihan were to look at some of the same, uh, the same realities today. You're talking about someone of a different party, someone politically liberal, uh, one of the seminal democratic figures of the 20th century who also played a major role in the Nixon administration. But he, he was, I think, an intellectually honest man, especially looking at the 1960s and the 1970s. I, uh, I, I say this as a word of tribute to you. I think you're a very honest man, uh, daring to look at reality here in the 21st century. Well, thanks for those kind words. And as you might know, um, I sit in his desk on the Senate floor very self-consciously. So I'm I'm the third or fourth most conservative member of the Senate by voting record. Um, and Moynihan was a, a very liberal New York Democrat, but he's the author of that old quote uh, attributed to lots of different people. But he's actually the first person to have said, everyone's entitled to your own opinions, but you're not entitled to your own facts. And he was well aware that the First Amendment, uh, freedom of religion, speech, press, assembly, protest, is always going to be fragile. There's always a majoritarian instinct in the world uh, to reduce things to short-term Manichaean. If we've got the power, let's, uh, let's squash everybody who differs with us. And he was also very mindful about the challenges of family structure in the 1960s and 70s. And, and obviously the stuff that he said then feels prophetic now about every race in our 320 million person nation. So um, I'm a big Moynihan fan, so thanks for the kind words. Well, in that same light, so am I. And, and I'm also a fan of that era in, in which you would have uh, really substantial political debates between people like Daniel Patrick Moynihan and William F. Buckley Jr. And uh, they were done in the context of mutual respect, understanding the political stakes were high. But they had a mutual respect for reality. And uh, the big question was not what is the problem. The big, the big debate was over what to do about it. Here, here. Yeah. Our forefathers, our founders believed that uh, people are going to differ about really important things. It's a fallen world. Uh, it's one of the most basic presuppositions that undergirds politics that might work. And by politics, I mean, in a macro sense, history of the world, marshalling power. Um, if you understand that the world is broken and people want to take your life and your liberty and your stuff, you're going to come to politics with saner assumptions than utopians who think that, you know, if only the right person could be in power, um, we could fix everything and we could bring about heaven on earth. That's fundamentally not true. So the American system and the division of uh, separation of powers and checks and balances, not only across legislative versus executive versus judicial functions, but frankly, the Ninth and Tenth Amendments itself consciously wanted to distinguish between what Washington could potentially tackle and of that other subset of all things and topics that exist, of those that government can address, still most of them are state and local. If you had those assumptions about American life when you begin the debate, then we can have lots of reasonable, respectful conversations about what the level of federal intervention, say, in a modern economy is. And I'm, I'm a conservative. I'm a small government guy. But I'm a limited government guy prior to being a small government yes. guy. And I want to respect other people who are medium-level government interventionists, um, but they also still believe in limited government because that's about the relationship between the soul and about belief and about conscience and the powers of the state. I have only one real regret about your book, and that is the fact that I, I, I think the title really fits the entire book. But it, it fits the first third most uh, most urgently. 
you, your book is entitled The Vanishing American Adult. I think it's about such big ideas that it's basically about the vanishing America by the time you complete the book. And uh, it, it is a book about big ideas. I appreciate the sociological, economic, political, historical analysis. I, I know your academic background and, and, and can see that in this. But what I hope many people will gain by reading your book is an understanding that ideas really do matter. As Russell Kirk famously said, ideas have consequences. And you track some of those consequences throughout the several chapters of your book. Here, here. Uh, we, we have to be talking more intentionally about the ideas uh, that both unite us as a nation or used to and need to again, and the ideas that are frankly uh, corrupting some of our, our discourse right now. Um, we, 41% of Americans under age 35 now tell pollsters they think the First Amendment is dangerous uh, because you might use your freedom of speech to say something that would hurt someone else's feelings. That's actually the whole point of America. Uh, America is about each of us protecting each other's right to be wrong. Like I, we, we want to argue about heaven and hell and we want to do it free from violence that acknowledges the dignity of the person with whom we're arguing. There are all sorts of places where I need to be persuaded I'm wrong. And on the places where I'm not wrong, I need to get better at refining my argument and I need to get better at persuading my neighbor. And all of that presupposes an environment protected from violence, actual physical violence. So now we can wrestle with ideas. And when Americans start to believe that encountering an idea you didn't already know might itself be a form of violence, well, then we are in a civilizational decline that's pretty hard to pull out of. And we're going to have to find some common ground to go back to uh, the cultural pluralism that America is meant to protect. So then you can get to the dinner table and the front door of the church and to the town square and wrestle about the stuff that really matters. I think if uh, we could put together in a room uh, Washington, Hamilton, Jefferson, and then fast forward to three specific presidents I'll mention, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, John F. Kennedy, and, and Ronald Reagan, the one thing that all would absolutely agree upon and insist upon is a point made in your book, and that is that America is a creedal nation. And I, I think if you put all those in the room as politically disparate and diverse as they were, they would be pretty close on articulating that creed. What has happened to America as a creedal nation, and what did they mean, and what do you mean by that? Yeah, well, it's such a great uh, line and phrase. And, you know, Reagan's way of saying it was, you're always only one generation away from the extinction of freedom in any republic. If you don't pass on what you're about, what your shared narrative is, what, what our basic presuppositions are as a nation, then it will just devolve into um, a future battle of everybody trying to get more out of each other and out of the central state, and everything will become a zero-sum game. Uh, Margaret Thatcher, upon visiting the U.S., um, late in her um, prime ministership, uh, talked about the fact that Europe is a continent formed by history, but America is the only nation ever formed by philosophy. And that fundamental sense that there is an idea, and the American idea is that God gives us rights. Uh, we have our 320 million American citizens have rights by nature and government is not the author or the source of those rights. God gives us rights and government is just our shared tool to secure those rights. That's what American exceptionalism is. It's an understanding that there was a historically unique thing that happened in Philadelphia in 1787. It's not a claim that Americans are better than other people. It's not an ethnic claim. Um, it's a recognition that historically no nation had ever really in a broad sort of declarative 
affirmation said, hey, we think everybody is created with dignity and with inalienable rights. And now government has to come together as this project to try to secure those rights, but government can never drift toward a statist claim that it's the author of those rights. And American exceptionalism is a term that's fallen into disrepute a little bit, partly because I think people have wrongly reduced it to a term that's used about American foreign policy and levels of intervention. And I think the distinction that we should all be clarifying is the American founding is a truth claim about all 7 billion people on the earth. We believe everybody's created with dignity. Now, that's a different thing than what the U.S. should do about it because our powers, our government's powers, are specifically about the 320 million. But the, the rhetorical and the larger philosophical claim is about everybody. That idea needs to be trumpeted loudly. You know, when I think of that point made by uh, Lady Thatcher, I, I think of the distinction between reading the text of the Magna Carta and then shifting to the United States Declaration of Independence and the preamble to the U.S. Constitution, those are not the same kinds of documents. One's an agreement. Another is an absolute worldview, truth claim, assertion that uh, that led, of course, to an entirely new kind of government and, uh, uh, well, a new city. Yeah, very well said. And, it, you know, people even who are not coming at the question just from a, a historical or political theoretical point – can still recognize what a gift America has been. Um, I, I think I had a, a dinner with, uh, with Bono last year, and he was talking. It ended up being him and me and David Petraeus and Bill Gates. And, um, and Petraeus was sitting there, and Bono basically admitted, hey, I'm a, I'm a pacifist, and so I don't think I like soldiers. I don't think I like warriors. And yet I'm interested in a whole bunch of poverty issues. And I spent a lot of time in Africa. And over time, he said, as I come to these new countries and I find lots of American military presence, um, I find generals there. And I think, holy smokes, is this a great thing? Every, he said emotionally, he felt that every time he came to a country that had a lot of American military helping advise whatever nation there was trying to you know, upgrade its military and there were sort of military advisors or training assistance coming from U.S. military folks. He said, I always felt comforted because I knew the security environment would be stable enough that then we could deal with the poverty issues I cared about. And intuitively, he just said, he sort of blurted out, I don't think he was trying to use it as a sort of planned stump speech line at a dinner. He said, the thing about America is you people believe in an idea about who your nation is. He said, I love Ireland. We're the most beautiful place anywhere. They're my people. They're, they're, we sing together. Ireland is incredible. But no one would say that Ireland is an idea. America is an idea. In your book, you deal with not only ideas, but the sources of those ideas. And I want to mention one in particular because I think uh, you mentioned something that is almost universally unknown, ignored, or even where known denied. And, uh, and, and that is the revolution that landed in the early decades of the 20th century in this civilization through people such as John Dewey. And you mentioned behind all of that is uh, the metaphysical club, the rise of pragmatism as a test of truth. But in particular, a progressivist understanding not only of the schools – I think a lot of people know Dewey in terms of the schools – but to the larger culture, which came down to denying that there are any fixed truths, that there are any natural truths, and denying the very truth claims made in the Declaration of Independence, instead making everything just a matter of, uh, of pragmatic evaluation and, uh, and often with the American founding ideals found wanting – I appreciate the fact you, you, you give attention to Dewey and to others because I think without them, we can't possibly understand where we are today. 
Yes. I think, you know, those of us who are um, trained in some intellectual history and, and take theology and ideas seriously, um, we know that it's important to wrestle with ideas. We also sometimes overstate the particular info, you know, we'll, we'll connect the dots between a particular uh, idea font and uh, what happens in a given time and place without always having the institutional bridge to say that those ideas really drove that specific outcome. Dewey is one of those guys, though, who I think his influence is so big and broad that he's completely understudied and under understood in America. And it, to me, he is, uh, again, this book is not trying to do blame laying, but if there is blame to be laid, um, he is the great nemesis in my, in my project here, because I think that Dewey was truly an enemy of the family. Um, he believed a whole bunch of pragmatic things about the zeitgeist des- determining what's ultimately worth valuing because it didn't feel like he believed in objective truth hardly anywhere. Um, but he was also an institution builder. I mean, Dewey did so many diverse things in his life, but I think the most significant thing he did is he effectively founded the modern um, American secondary school and was was responsible for its mass spread. And I want to be clear that I think the spread of mass secondary education in America is a net good, but it's not an unmitigated good. It's a net good, but we need to unpack what was good about it and what was not. And clearly, as the economy shifted from mostly agrarian jobs to mostly urbanized industrial, I call them big tool economy jobs, um, there was a virtue to protecting kids from exploitation in these factories, but then there was a need to figure out how to occupy kids' time. And so a lot of becoming 14 to 16 to 17 to 18 years old didn't used to be sedentary, inside, um, sort of passive learning. And over time, that became what American secondary education's institutional form was. Again, I want to distinguish between public funding um, and and sort of uh, monopoly-style administration of these schools. But I'm I'm not an opponent of public funding of education. I think there are all sorts of uh, positive externalities about those kind of educational investments. But Dewey wanted a certain form of school that essentially made kids more passive and in particular made them less likely uh, to believe their parents and other authority figures from the family should be trusted. And he wanted the school to become the center of the physical and moral universe of children. And I think that's a big problem. Well, yes. And uh, I, I wish without the constraints of time, we could talk about that even more. But the reality is that Dewey wasn't hiding what he was. I mean, he, he was writing in public the fact that he, he wanted the schools to separate children from what he called the accumulated prejudices of their parents and uh, to make that break with that authority. But, you know, when when I look at, at the totality of your work here, I want to move on just very quickly to a couple of other things. I think the strongest two arguments you make uh, practically uh, about recovery here have to do with the recovery of work and we've spoken about a bit the dignity of work and – and, uh, and, and finding, finding value and satisfaction in contributing rather than merely consuming. But I think one of the most unexpected parts of your book, by the way, your own biography in terms of your work as a young person and all the way through, that, 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 that's very helpful. Uh, I found that uh, a similar approach helpful with a student the other day when I pointed out that uh, I was a bag boy in a grocery store and a janitor at one point in my life, which I, I, I think was just shocking to him. I thought, well, you know, I, I didn't start out here. But uh, it, right. j- just in terms of your book, you make a distinction. And by the way, you mentioned another one of my favorites, which is Daniel Borston, 
I started reading his work when I was 19. It made such a, such a difference in, uh, in my understanding of America. But you, you talk about travel and the distinction between being a tourist and being a traveler, which you track back to uh, Borson's definitions. I think you're really onto something there. Well, thanks. I, I knew that in my um, life experience, people who've traveled a lot, and again, this is not rich European, you know, the grand traveler, uh, you know, aristocrat of the 17th or 18th century. This is really just the ability to see a different way of orga- organizing and ordering life, the natural versus the built environment or the neighborhood or the city you're from versus someplace 10 miles away. I noticed when I was in my mid-20s that two questions were almost always uh, interesting to ask over dinner with people that you'd already become intrigued by. People you'd work with uh, or that were creative or that were just curious, always had something interesting to say, a quick take on, you know, some new book that was out. Two things were true of most of them. Uh, One was they could tell you the story of where their work ethic emerged. They knew the first time that they had worked hard. Uh, That's the first part of what you talked about. The second is almost all of them had traveled some. And I think of the old, you know, uh, sometimes overused story about how a fish can't tell you what water's like because he's never been out of water. But the reality is there are many, many things in life that until you have a point of contrast, you don't have any ability to see the place from which you came. One of the most basic reasons to learn a second language. I mean, obviously, people in the ministry need to know their Hebrew and their Greek. Um, but one of the most basic reasons to learn Latin or to learn Spanish um, is just so that you finally can see the grammar, the, the structure and the vocabulary differences and opportunities and limitations of the language you come from. And travel is that. Travel is the first ability to get to another place see a different way of organizing life, of social relationships, of production, of consumption, of you know, approaches to technology and the calendar and the rhythm of the day and fashion. And as soon as you start to understand a second way of ordering life, you now can finally start to see and reflect upon the place from which you come. And so I built the travel chapter um, around the stories of about 10 buddies of mine, maybe slightly more than that. But basically, it's friends that I grew up with or that I went to college with or that I worked with in my early to mid-20s. And almost all of them um, had had some key formative travel experience. And again, this didn't have to be expensive travel. It could just be camping. Absolutely. But where they had yeah. an experience where they went to a new place, and all of a sudden, boom, it was like light bulbs were turned on, and they could look back on the place from which they came and reflect on it. That distinction Daniel Borston made was between being a tourist, which is merely passive, and being a traveler who is uh, deeply invested in the travel. By the way, a, a very wise man told me many, many decades ago when I was a young husband – He said, when you have children, don't buy them things, buy them experiences and make sure they have them with you. Take them, take them with you, take them around this country. Uh, Again, it doesn't have to be expensive, but, uh, but let their eyes be opened and let their eyes be opened with you. I thought that was, that was very, very good advice. Thanks. I put little, um, some bullet checklist options in these last five chapters where we just have ways that my wife and I have started wrestling with not just our teens, but when our kids were, you know, four and six and eight, what are the sort of uh, appetizers you can put in front of them that set the stage and the table for what you want them to be experiencing when they're 12 and, and 13 and 14? And one of the most basic things we do is we just wrestle through the social awkwardness of a lot of people who are so used to generationally segregated life, not expecting kids to ever be around. And we just take our kids with us lots and lots of places. 
and they're, our, our daughters are 15 and 13 and our son is six. And so the upper two, you know, they're well able to sit still and be quiet and hide in the corner and be unobtrusive, but you had to get them to that stage. And I've basically taken my kids on the road with me for the last eight years of work life. Even today, as I commute, I live in Nebraska, commute to DC Monday to Friday, you know, 43 or 44 work weeks out of the 52 weeks of the year. And I bring a kid with me almost half, maybe a little bit more than half the time. We rotate which kid is my date for the week. And, you know, there are no other senators that have their kids around committee hearings and all that stuff. But my kids are regularly exposed to different stages of life. And obviously the Senate is a different kind of place than most people are going to be around. But we did this in the last few jobs we and callings we had before this as well. We just take the kids on the road. And it's to your point of buying them experiences. It's of the best education they can ever get. Absolutely. You wrote a book and uh, you are a man of books. And uh, as we draw this to a close, I, I do recall that uh, a little over 20 years ago, you were actually along with my our late friend, James Montgomery Boyce, the editor of a book to which I contributed now over two decades ago. And, and your love of books and the fact that you are a man of books comes very clearly through uh, your own work here. I want to give you an opportunity to speak about that. What What is the role of reading and books in the life of the mind and in the life of the nation? Oh, well, well, friend, and by the way, I want to give a shout out here to Dr. Boyce's uh, collected volume from that. Uh, it's called Here We Stand, and it was a call from Confessing Evangelicals in 1996, and your chapter in that is extraordinary, and folks should go back and, and reread that. My writing chapter uh, is trying to set the stage that the truth founder and father of America. If there's one guy without whom you couldn't have uh, the American founding, I think it's Gutenberg. I think math literacy and the deliberation that comes with becoming a nation of readers is truly a prerequisite for the American experiment. You're all in a broken world. You're going to have security and you're going to have structure. You're going to have order keeping. And the question is whether or not the discipline and the control comes from yourself or has to come from a more centralized authoritarian state. And so we want self-restraint, self-discipline, self-governance, self-control in this nation. And all of that presupposes a life of the mind that can distinguish between the reason and the passions. Obviously, the passions and the heart and the loves uh, and the affections are critically important to a life well lived to God's glory and honor. Um, You have to be able to get there to that self-discipline and self-control by being able to deliberate. And that presupposes a certain kind of reflection that for us is always going to have a near, darn near its core, uh, a a literate uh, experience. So a couple of distinctions we draw. One, we distinguish for our kids between quality reading and quantity reading. And we realized as soon as we could get them addicted to reading by reading quantity, we would then be able to reshape the quality. We could substitute more and more better works and, and more vegetables for the cotton candy. And so early on, we just wanted our kids to, to be readers. And we borrow from another friend of ours, a guy named Tevi Troy, um, who used to do a lot of stuff for President George W. Bush. And Tevi kind of created this thing for little kids uh, called the Century Club, which is, can you get your kids to read 100 books in a year? two a week, and they can start really simple and short books, but get them in the habit of thinking of themselves as a reader and developing the discipline. Again, I want our kids to be active physically running down the world, but I also want them to be able to sit still enough to, to read. So we want to get them addicted and then substitute what's in it. Another key distinction in the chapter is between a personal canon and a national canon. I think it's really a shame for the nation that 
for you know for a long time this is 120 years in the coming uh that we've had drift away from a shared a belief that we need any shared reading list again not a compulsory reading list not a governmental reading list but a shared set of cultural assumptions about what we should read in common but by the mid to late 1980s it was pretty clear that the canon was going to die i care about that debate but i wanted to distinguish in this chapter about the fact that even if you want to have a big canon debate that doesn't change the fact that most of us in our families and in our schools and in our neighborhoods don't have kids who are really reading in a way that's deliberate enough to be fighting about their own bookshelf so that they can love their neighbor enough and be persuaded by their neighbor to have a deliberative debate about what should be on it so we made up this kind of construct in the chapter and by we in this case um, it's my wife and I together wrestled through a reading list where we said if you had a five-foot shelf and assume that a book's about an inch wide, uh, if you could only have 60 books on it and you had a couple of conditions, one of which is you, you think a book is important enough that you'd return to read it at least twice in your life. Another is you want to buy extra copies of this book to hand out to people that you love and care about. How do you argue to a list of only 60 books that you want your kids to leave home with? some that they've already wrestled through and others that they've already committed. These are books they know they need to wrestle with over the course of their life. Senator Sass, you give us hope for the uh, the future of a Christian statesman and a man of ideas uh, or woman of ideas as, as you're joined by colleagues uh, there in Washington, D.C. I want to thank you so much for your life of public service and, and, and for this book and what it reflects in terms of your investment in these issues. I, I also have to end on a personal note, uh, not only of appreciation for you. I simply want to say – that uh, one of the men who was most important to me in my life was my father-in-law, Marvin Kaler, uh, Mary's father, uh, from Fairbury in Norfolk, Nebraska, who, uh, oh, wow. who made a great investment in my life and is so greatly missed. And he would be incredibly proud to know that Ben Sass is the United States senator, one of two representing the state of Nebraska. So thank you for that. Well, thank you for saying that. My dad was born in Fairbury. It's a tiny little town. Most of your listeners would never know that, but that's, uh, that's a fun providence. My, my dad was born in the same place. And thank you for having me on. And frankly, thank you for this podcast. I am a, I am a listener. Well, we greatly appreciate that. And uh, we will hope to continue this conversation another time. Thank you so much for joining me for Thinking in Public. Thank you, sir. I'm so thankful for that conversation with Senator Ben Sass. The book reminds me of a fundamental issue that was raised by the Puritans in terms of why parents should teach their children a catechism and why pastors should see to it to encourage parents to do that very thing. As some of those Puritans understood, it wasn't just that the children needed the catechism, it was that the parents needed the catechism. And that by the pastoral exhortation to parents to teach their children the catechism, parents would along the way also learn what they were dutifully to teach their children. I think this is one of those books. You might read this book thinking that it's primarily about a problem that affects young people in America. That's the presenting issue. But by the time you get to about the first third mark of the book, it's abundantly clear this is a book about all of us. It is a book about American society. It is a book that needs the attention 
of every single American. There are a couple of just simply remarkable facets of this book from the very beginning. One, it is written by a United States senator. Now, it's not unprecedented for a politician to write a book. As a matter of fact, the average campaign these days, especially at the national level, comes with some kind of a book, but that book usually fits a couple of criteria. Number one, it's not really written by the person whose name is on the cover. And secondly, it is rarely a serious engagement with ideas, and if so, it's mostly about ideas solely in terms of public policy, not in terms of worldview, most basic understanding of reality, the philosophical or, as Senator Sass made very clear, the creedal basis of our society as the United States of America. This book is a powerful testimony to the power of ideas written by a United States senator, and it's not merely about policy. It's a much bigger book than that. I've been really interested ever since the book first became a matter of some initial public conversation to see how defensive so many cultural authorities are about the very idea that a United States senator would write such a book. They seem to be looking in the book for something that might be politically divisive, something in the book that might be a tip about certain kinds of current headline policy matters. That's not what Senator Sass is about in this book. That's what makes this book even more important than something that would merely address issues of urgent public policy. Senator Sass understands that those issues of public policy are indeed urgent, but they do not emerge out of a vacuum. Just as I stated in our conversation that if you were to put most American presidents, those who are the most recognizable names together in a room from the first 200 years of this nation's history, they would easily find a common conversation about that creedal identity of the United States of America and furthermore, even a great deal of commonality about the substance of that creed, the American idea, the American ideal. It is a sign of our times, and a quite lamentable one at that, that such a conversation these days reveals a lack of common assumption, and furthermore, on the part of many, a lack of an affirmation that this is a creedal nation, that some fundamental truth claims and beliefs are absolutely necessary for America to be America, and furthermore, to stay America. But there's another very hopeful aspect to this particular book. It comes down to this. There are actually many good books written by those who hold PhDs in history from Yale University. Very few of them are widely read. You put the word senator in front of the author's name, and the book just might get a little more attention. Deservedly so. In this book, you see Senator Ben Sass in so many different contexts, working there in terms of the farm in Nebraska, going to college. You see Ben Sass as husband and as father and, of course, as public servant, college president, and as United States senator. As I end, I have to say that perhaps the most hopeful aspect of all of this is that a man of ideas, of these ideas, can still be elected to the United States Senate. I'm very thankful that when we look to Washington, D.C. and to the state capitals and elsewhere in our country— there is still evidence of the Christian statesman. That evidence is on full display, I'm glad to say, in this conversation today. Again, my thanks to my guest, Senator Ben Sass, for thinking with me today. For more information on the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, go to sbts.edu. For information on Boyce College, go to boycecollege.com. Thank you for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.